If you would like to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 16, we'll bring the chapter to a close today. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 24, Matthew writes, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay each one according to his deeds. Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it is inerrant. It is sufficient for us. The problem is never with your word. It's always with us, with our understanding, with our our limitations, with our assumptions. So I ask this morning that uh, we would come before you and we would bow before your word. As we would bow before you if you were here. That we would listen to your word as you speak to us. And Lord, as your spirit touches on those places in our lives where we need teaching, where we need to be rebuked, where we need to be corrected, where we need to be trained. I ask that we would be receptive to that, that we would yield easily to your hand, that we would grow and that we would honor you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In the passage immediately preceding this, Uh, Jesus uh, announces that he is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be raised up. He begins to talk about that. It becomes a regular topic of conversation. Peter made a, uh, a terrible confession. God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him, calls him Satan because his, his uh, motivations were satanic. They were self-oriented, not God-oriented. And then Jesus immediately goes into these words that we have read this morning. Uh, Thinking about the previous passage and thinking about Jesus, nothing would keep him from his cross. He says in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says in Luke chapter 2, when he was 12 years old, you remember the story, they had gone to the Passover, they were leaving Jesus was not with Mary and Joseph. They got to the end of the day to that first camp, and they couldn't find him. They had assumed that he was with friends or with family. He's 12. He's going to be off with his friends. So they rush back to Jerusalem, and they spend three days in the city looking for him. And finally, they go to the temple, and they find Jesus talking with the Jewish leaders in the temple. And when they they kind of rebuke him for it, he says this, Did you not know? that I had to be in my father's house? In John 2, when Jesus has cleansed the temple, he rolled up his sleeves. Remember, he was a carpenter. He worked with stone and wood. He was as strong as a man could be. And he rolled up his sleeves. He made a whip out of cords, and he drove people out. He overturned tables. 
And his disciples remembered afterward, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus was a a man who found his food in in obedience to the Father. He had to be in the Father's house. He was consumed with zeal for God. That's what Peter didn't understand. When Peter tries to stop him, Jesus says, you're in my way. You're a stumbling block. And getting in the way of Jesus is worse than getting in the way of a rhinoceros. I, I've, I've read that rhinoceroses can only see 30 feet, but they can run 30 miles an hour. And so if you're in their way, it's not a problem for them. There's no getting in Jesus' way. Jesus then immediately goes on to talk about discipleship. Now, in Matthew 10, we looked at this months ago, Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Jesus, in talking about his passion for the Father, for honoring the Father, his diligence, his determination to be godly, to be obedient, immediately calls his men and calls us as believers to that same kind of relationship. So as we think about this passage this morning, I wanted to see what Jesus says about genuine disciples. I want to show you that discipleship makes sense, especially when we understand how God values things. I want to talk about the inheritance that we will one day receive, those of us who know him. And then I want to talk about the guarantee that we have that he's telling us the truth. So let's begin with with genuine disciples. What is a genuine disciple? Jesus outlines this outlines us for it in verse 24. A genuine disciple longs for Christ. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A genuine disciple longs for Christ. Those who have a legalistic mindset might think that the the first step of discipleship is obedience. But the first step of discipleship is longing. A disciple wants to follow his Lord. She wants to be in Christ's presence. She's motivated. He is motivated by all of that. What Jesus does matters. What Jesus says matters. Where Jesus goes matters. And it becomes the core. It becomes the the driving motivation for everything that follows. A genuine disciple denies himself or herself. This isn't suicide. This isn't deliberately causing ourselves suffering as uh, some of the mystics were known to do. They would make whips and they would beat themselves because they thought that was somehow godly. It doesn't mean the abandonment of your personality, that you become flat. It doesn't mean having a martyr complex and doing everything that you can to die. It means that you are willing to be defined and shaped by your master rather than by yourself. It means you prefer his views, his values, his beliefs, his goals to your own. A true disciple is going to happily change in order to please the Lord. Let me say a mature disciple. A mature disciple will happily change to please the Lord. A genuine disciple will follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere, including the grave. Let him take up his cross and follow me He says, now Jesus demonstrates this for us. In Philippians 2, uh, Paul writes, being found in appearance as a man, 
Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I want you to notice carefully what it says. Paul didn't write, being found in appearance of a man, Jesus humbled himself by dying on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point is not the dying. The point is the obedience. That's where the humility is. The point of humility was to follow the Father's will everywhere it led and anywhere it led. And when it came to the foot of the cross, Jesus didn't say, no, I'm stopping off. I'm stopping here. I'm getting off here. This is where my stop is. Jesus didn't, didn't aim at the cross and end there. Jesus followed the Father to the cross and through the cross and to the empty tomb and out of the empty tomb. There's such a huge difference. The devil wants you to think, he wants me to think, that following Jesus just means eventually going to some painful, agonizing death. It doesn't. Following Jesus means going to an amazing, wonderful glory. That glory happens to go through death for every person. But that's not the point of following Christ. This is how genuine disciples are to be. Jesus says in Luke 6.46, speaking to Jews who were arguing with him, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus doesn't say here, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't live the right way? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and uh, don't obey the law? He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We need to realize and just remind ourselves that Jesus did not come, die on a cross, get buried, rise on the third day, ascend 40 days later, and then drop the Bible out of the heavens and say, I'll be back to see how you're doing. He continues to lead us. Now, he leads us through his word. He leads us as we pray. His spirit is leading and guiding and teaching us all the time. He never stops. But we, we are, are, are never to call Jesus Lord and then go to some written set of principles and say that's the end of it. We're to go to him. Now, when you're truly going to Christ, by the way, let me deal with this just in case anybody gets confused. If you truly go to Christ, he's going to direct you to his word. He will speak to you and teach you and motivate you and guide you out of his word. But behind this book is a person who's real and is alive and his almighty God. So this is a steadily following of Jesus. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, follow me there. Uh, You could translate it, uh, be a little clumsy, be following me. Not follow me once, not follow me for a day, but be a follower, be following me. Come after me and stay after me. So discipleship is not a Sunday morning thing. It's not a Wednesday night Bible study thing. It's a 24-7, 365 thing. It's, it's, it's how we are to live from the moment he regenerates us until the day we take our final breath and he takes us home. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. It's not a second level. It's not a different blessing. It's not a second commitment. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. The question is not whether you're a disciple if you're, if you're a Christian. The question is, what kind of a disciple are you? Are you an obedient disciple? Are you a faithful disciple? Or are you disobedient and unfaithful? 
this idea uh, of self-denial, pursuing Christ to the point of death, following him every day, uh, often is objected to. There are two primary objections I've come across. One is the easy believism objection. Easy believism says that being a Christian only requires one moment of faith in your life. You believe in Jesus one time, just once. As long as you really mean it, you're good for all eternity. You can go back to anything else, and it doesn't matter what you do. You don't have to obey him. You don't have to follow him. You don't have to live in him. You don't even have to believe in him. You could become a Muslim. You could become a Hindu or an atheist, and it doesn't matter because you had that moment. That's easy believism, and it's simply unbiblical. They confuse the works that earn salvation, which don't exist, with the works that result from salvation, which must exist, or there's no salvation. If there's no transformation, there's been no regeneration, right? The other objection that I hear is the legalism objection. You're just being legalistic. You're saying that I have to do this to be saved. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible never says that salvation is merited or earned by doing good works or obeying the law. There are some people who make discipleship just a matter of getting the right answers. As long as you get the right answers on the test, you're a disciple. And that's utterly wrong. The devil can get the right answers on the test. What the devil can't do and doesn't do is trust, and then out of that trust, obey. Trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Somebody should write a song about that. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew 7, he will turn away those who did religious works but never actually trusted him. He'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now these people say, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many miracles in your name? You ever prophesied, cast out demons, done many miracles? No, I don't think so. Jesus says those works, which are the highest religious works we can think of, are evil if he doesn't know you. So this idea that we can work our way to, to heaven, that we can get our good works to balance bad works, just is not going to fly. Mere obedience is not enough. Mere obedience cannot save us. So what is it that Jesus wants from us? I can tell you that very easily. He wants your full trust. He wants your full trust. Even through the difficult times, even through the hard times. He wants you to be fully and completely devoted to him. That's the, if anyone wishes, longs to come after me. He wants that longing. And he wants us to faithfully and obediently serve him. But we need to remember that the obedience follows the faith and the service follows the faith. We're not saying I'm going to do all of these great things and I hope out of that the Lord will love me and forgive me. We're saying the Lord has loved me and forgiven me and he's given me new life and hope and because of that then I will live in obedience to him. So genuine disciples long for Christ. They deny themselves. They give him primacy in everything. They, they commit themselves to him even if he leads them to the grave and they actually follow him consistently. That's what genuine, mature discipleship is. 
Now, I said I, I wanted to talk about discipleship making sense, and, and it does. Christian discipleship is the most sensible thing a human being can do with their lives, without question. Jesus says in verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-preservation is a natural instinct. We all have it. None of us relish the idea of our death or our suffering. Even unborn babies struggle in the womb to get away from abortionist instruments. We just are determined to survive. And, and so at first glance to many people, what Jesus calls for in verse 24 sounds like a bad deal. I have to begin by denying myself. I have to take up my cross and accept the reality of my own death. I have to follow Jesus and not follow my own desires. That doesn't sound like a very good deal. So let, let me tell you my testimony about this. There, there was a time when I knew why I was a Christian, but I did not know why anybody else would want to be because it was hard. The Spirit of God crushed my conscience on a daily basis. My circumstances were so hard that sometimes I broke down in tears or I broke out in anger. I felt that God was opposing me every step I tried to take. He was in my way. He was blocking it. He was digging pits for me to fall into. I thought that he was at times playing this kind of a cruel game where he would call me to follow him and then do everything he could to prevent me from doing that. The problem was that I wasn't denying myself at all. I was preferring myself. I was in love with myself. I did not want to take up my cross and die. I wanted to succeed. I was willing to follow Jesus if he would take me somewhere where I would succeed. I was doing exactly what he warns us against in Matthew 16, 25. I was trying to save my life, to preserve it here on earth, to make it my best life now. That's what I was trying to do. So if something didn't have immediate meaning to me and make me successful, I considered it to be a waste of time. God is faithful, though. He refused to let me go my own way. He never stopped leading me to actually follow him. And for a long time, as I said, I thought that he was fighting me, but the reality is that I was fighting him. He wasn't weighing me down. I was pulling as hard as I could against him and found him to be immovable, but he wasn't pulling hard on me. When Kevin was little, we had a, uh, a German short hair named Mandy, and Linda took Mandy for obedience training and one of the first things they did was teach her how to walk on a leash and to teach her how to walk on a leash. This is what they did. I don't know how they do it now, but to teach her to walk on a leash, she had her on about a 20-foot long lead, and she would tell her to heal. And then Linda would begin running as fast as she could, and that little puppy would just sit there wondering what was going on and get jerked off her feet. And then Linda would bring her up by herself, say heel and start walking, and then run as fast as she could and jerk her off her feet. How, how many times did it take? Oh, it was weeks. It was weeks. <laughs> it took me years, though, with God running and jerking me off my feet. 
the Father graciously and kindly brought me to repentance and he brought me to an acceptance of his purposes and his will, I gradually learned, it took me a long time, that faith and obedience work together. I trust him because he is true and faithful. I obey him because that's what genuine faith does. And I learned that serving him is the best way to live. And that much of the time serving him means serving his people. And instead of focusing on my own success, I learned to start focusing on the success of other believers. My role as a pastor is to help you grow in your life in Christ, to help you grow in in your faith, to help you get through the rough times that you face. And if you haven't reached those times yet, to help you prepare so that when you reach them, you've got a depth of faith to draw from. So, beloved, if we trust him, he promises that we are going to be secure in him for all eternity. We have pain and suffering now. There is no pain or or suffering in, in heaven, in eternity, with him. Part of deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me means acknowledging that this earthly life is not what you would want it to be. It's just never what we would want it to be. A lot of people figure that out without the Lord, but then they end up bitterly unhappy. Eternal life is going to be what we want it to be, and, and infinitely more. Everything that we want life to be will be ours when the Lord returns. So we, we have this, hang on, <laughs> excuse me. We, we have this collision within our hearts and our minds, especially with, with the focus of a lot of modern teaching, that if you trust right, if you re- believe right, if you read right, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be awesome. And Jesus says, no, the life that follows me is self-denying, cross-accepting, and obediently following. That, that's the life that follows me. We, we need to understand God's economy. We need to understand how he measures value. The reality is Jesus says this, what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, a single soul is worth more than the entire world. If you could own the entire world and everything in it, everything was in your name, it wouldn't be worth your soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a rhetorical question. Since your soul is worth more than everything, nothing less than everything could pay for your soul. That's why salvation by good works can't possibly work. The people who say, well, I just hope that when I die, my good works outweigh my bad works. That's pointless. That's saying, I hope that when I die... Part of everything is enough to redeem me. Well, all of everything is not enough to redeem you. Your soul is worth more. Moses understood this. He's one of the the biblical examples of this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin regarding the reproach of Christ 
greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses had his choice of the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt. He was raised as Egyptian nobility, but he refused it all. He chose mistreatment and suffering with his people. He counted the reproaches of Christ as greater riches. That doesn't mean that he knew Jesus. He lived 1,500, 1,800 years before Christ. What it means is that he suffered as Jesus suffered. He suffered for the sake of of righteousness. He suffered for the sake of obedience and faith. Not perfectly. He didn't do those things perfectly. He was a sinner. But Moses' eyes were not on the short-term benefits of Egyptian nobility. They were on the eternal benefit of knowing his God. God's economy values things very differently than we do. Our souls are worth infinitely more than anything around us. There is nothing you can own that is worth your soul. There's not an experience you can have that's worth your soul. All of the great feelings in the world are not worth your soul. We also need to understand God's calendar. It's not limited to days and months and years. God's calendar encompasses eons and ages and eternity itself. So when are all of these good things going to come to us? We want them now. Jesus says he's going to repay everybody according to their deeds when he returns with their angels. That's a it's an important phrase that means we know exactly when he's going to do that. It's not the rapture. It's not the second coming. It's final judgment. That's when Jesus comes when his angels. So when Jesus comes in final judgment, everyone will receive what they deserve. The righteous and the unrighteous alike. We, we usually think of judgment as being a negative, but judgment simply means making a, making a distinction. And behaving in righteousness, God doing what's right. So Romans 2, 5 to 8 speaks mainly to the ungodly, that's the context, but then it contains a promise for the godly as well. To the ungodly, Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay to each according to his works. Now notice this, to those who by perseverance... In doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will receive eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and anger. The day of judgment is going to be fearsome for the wicked, for unbelievers, those who are selfishly ambitious. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, ungodliness, by the way, can be defined It's defined here as uh, being unrighteous out of selfish ambition. The wicked are going to receive what they deserve. That's what justice is. Justice is getting what you deserve. That's justice. If you deserve something good and you get the good thing, that's justice. If you deserve punishment, you receive the punishment, that's justice. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, the first half of it. So think about this. The ungodly have worked hard their whole lives to receive eternal judgment. They deserve it. They've worked for it. They have a right to it. They've earned it. It would, it, God would be unjust if he didn't punish the wicked for eternity because that's what they've been working for. 
That's what they have a right to. That's the paycheck. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the day of judgment is going to be wonderful for the godly. Those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. I don't want you to get tripped up by doing good. He's not talking about salvation by works. Doing good meaning trusting in the Son. And then following him as his child. Being regenerated and born again. Those who belong to him will receive eternal life. They will receive eternal life. We are naturally born into this world wanting, making ourselves the, the center of everything. We are naturally selfish. We are naturally self-ambitious. Jesus has to tell his men, you, you have to deny yourself. Say no to yourself and prefer me. You need to take up your cross. You need to be willing to follow me anywhere, including your own grave. And you need to actually follow me day by day. You need to be in a state of following me all the time so that Jesus establishes every footstep. He is going to repay to everyone according to their deeds. You could gain the whole world, which is the ambition of so many, but it isn't worth your soul. So let's think about this in a different way. What Jesus is saying to you is, I want you to forget everything good that you think you could have here. And I want you to make me your priority. And there will be good things. But they're not guaranteed. There's suffering. There's pain. There's difficulty. Some of it because of what you will endure. Some of it, much of it, because of the opposition of the people in the world who see how you live and don't understand it. They don't see how you could possibly do that, and they're going to argue with you, and they're going to mock you, and if you try and tell them, they're going to hate you for it. How do we know that it's true? How do we know that it's true? I, I got saved at the age of 17. I'm 61. If the Lord grants me my mom's life, it'll be 30 years more be, before he takes me home. And I will have devoted the great proportion of my life to following him and serving him instead of self and instead of wealth and instead of fun and experiences. What's the guarantee that that actually made sense? What's the confirmation of the promise? Well, obviously we have to take Jesus' word that all of this is true. We don't have any personal experience with it. The only personal experiences that we have are here, and they generally take us in a negative direction. We don't receive the eternal inheritance in this life. We receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says. But we don't receive anything like the fullness of what he offers in this life. It will only be when Jesus returns that the value of being his disciple will become clear. It takes a huge step of faith to believe that what we have, what we'll have in eternity will be infinitely better than what we could have here. And so Jesus helps us by providing us confirmation of his character and his nature and his promise. Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus is speaking here, I believe, of his transfiguration, which would happen six days later. 
He and his men, we know at, at this point, are up in the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's in the far north of Israel. The city of Caesarea Philippi sat at the the, the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is actually an extended mountain range with several peaks. And it says in chapter 17, we're going to be there next week, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before him. They saw him in his glory. They saw him in his kingdom with Moses and Elijah. Remember how Jesus speaks of the word, the law, and the prophets? Moses and Elijah are there with him. Peter, James, and John got to see that. I would love to be able to tell you that the Lord will give you that same confirmation, but he won't. Even the other apostles didn't get that confirmation. They had to take Peter, James, and John's word for it. Deuteronomy says a a matter shall be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Peter's one James is two, John is three, three witnesses came back and said, we saw the Lord glorified, high and lifted up. We are eyewitnesses of it. Peter talks about it. We are eyewitnesses of his glory. But Peter says, you know what we've got that's better? We have his word. Peter says, I would rather have his word than that experience. John, I believe, makes some reference to that in 1 John in, in his, in his uh, opening words. So the other apostles didn't receive that confirmation. We certainly don't. But Jesus has given confirmation that his promise is true, and we can trust him. We have to wait, but we can trust him. So let's bring this home. What do we take away from these verses? I want to leave you with four truths. First, we have to be active participants in our own discipleship. Jesus commands us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and be following him. It would have been so much easier back in those days when I was wrestling hard with God if he would have simply snapped his fingers and changed my heart. But what he wanted me to do was bend my knee. He didn't want to erase my brain. He wanted me to bend. He wanted me to bow to him. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples are going to find their lives with him in eternity. That's where life becomes what it's going to be. They are going to have abundant, everlasting life, but we need to be active participants. There is a direct relationship between your time in the Word and prayer and fellowship and your spiritual growth. Not everybody who spends the same amount of time in the word and prayer and fellowship will grow the same way. But if you spend no time in the prayer, prayer and the word and fellowship, you're not going to grow. Second, we need to accept God's valuation of things. We want to know what's in it for us. It's, it's not a wrong thing to ask. It's not wrong to ask that. But it's disastrous if we only use our values, if we only use our understanding, our rate of exchange, you might say. For the most part, people think that the faster the payoff, the, the greater the reward is. But remember, it takes nine months for a baby to be fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not instant. So those who wait on him, and the wait can feel very long, but those who wait on him will receive the full inheritance. We won't lose anything. Third, we, we've got to remember that our soul is worth more than anything on earth. I think it's worth more than the universe itself. There is no experience that you have, no possession you can have that's worth your soul. 
Jesus went so far back in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount to say, if your eye offends you, pull it out and throw it away. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Nothing is worth your soul. Nothing is worth your soul. We take that because of our, our, our broken spirits and hearts and our fleshly nature and the work of Satan. We always take that in the negative. It's better to suffer because if you suffer, God will love you more. It's not what he's saying. He's saying what's coming in eternity is infinitely greater than you can possibly think or imagine. So don't make this world everything. Don't try and solve every problem that you have here. Just don't worry about it. If you can't deal with something, just endure it. Endure it in faith and keep your eyes on him and trust that he's going to reward you far beyond your ability to possess. And finally, we have to remember that Jesus is coming again. He is going to repay the wicked for their sin. They're going to pay a terrible price. But he's also going to repay the righteous for their faith and obedience. And they are going to receive infinitely beyond what they worked for. See, we earn nothing as Christians. The wicked receive the justice and the judgment they deserve. They've worked for it. The hell that the wicked will endure, they've worked for it. They've earned it. They won't suffer one bit more than they've actually earned. That's justice. But because of mercy, we earn nothing as Christians. But we are co-heirs with Christ. He doesn't share our inheritance. We get to share his. He receives everything. In him, his people receive everything. So you can even think of it this way. It's all yours. If it belongs to him, it belongs to you. You just haven't come into possession of it yet. So you don't need to say, I need that. I need this. I need that. I need this experience. I need this reality. I need to believe this. It's all yours. It's all yours. Beloved, we're co-heirs with Christ. Let's look to him today and every day. Let's just deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. And at some point as we follow him, it will lead into a grave but it won't stop there. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We just need constant reminders in this world to not give up, to not lose heart, to keep following you. The world is battling against us and pressing against us constantly. There's nothing sadder than a Christian who won't uh, deny themselves, who won't live as a disciple. They were made to follow Christ. They were reborn to follow Christ. It's the best thing. It's not always the easiest thing, but it's the best thing. It's the most sensible thing we can do. Help us to recognize your economy, that our souls are worth more than anything we can possess or experience. Help us to recognize your calendar. Even though it seems like a long wait, when that moment comes, it will have gone by in the twinkling of an eye. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you.